Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Today is a day that is very, very, very surreal for me because I am sitting across from a man who was a big part of my life when I was a kid, yet when I look across from him, he looks younger than me. I don't know how it happened, but it happened. And I'm talking about Mickey Dolenz, the lead singer of a little band called The Monkees. And I joke when I say little because they were a group of gentlemen that really, really had a sound that was infectious and created, in my mind, as a very, very uh, young, impressionable person... A lot of holy shit moments that inspired me to want to be in this business. And before I start with what I want to say, because as you all know, I never know what I'm going to say until I sit down across from uh, the person. I just want to say first, again, I know it makes you want to vomit a little bit in your mouth when I say this, but I am so grateful for all of you for all the support of this show. You have no idea how much it means to me. This is a real passion of mine. I'm very emotional about it. I love this show. I love doing it. And I love what all of you have brought to this program because without all of you, there wouldn't be anything here. And your letters and your emails and all your support have been incredible. I can't even 
quantify it. If you feel the need to uh, want to support this show in any other way, uh, my shameless plug to you would be that the folks at Amazon have been gracious enough to allow me to put their banner on my website, barrycats.com slash podcast. And if you ever want to buy anything on Amazon, you can go to the website, click on the banner, and it doesn't cost you anything. But for some unknown reason, they donate a little bit of dollars to the Barry Cats Two Jewish Boys College Fund. So I'm very grateful to them, and I'm grateful to all of you who decide to go to that banner and click on it and help uh, those young men out in their quest to learn how to make a bong out of a Coke can. Um, so Mickey Dolans, I look across from Mickey Dolans, and this is what I think to myself, everybody. Uh, I think about a man who, there's a lot of things you don't know about this guy, and I've done a lot of research. I'm not going to get into it right now, but suffice to say, the television show meant a lot to me. I was the kind of kid that really had serious issues with television. I hated cartoons. I hated any cartoon that had anything remotely unrealistic about it. There was only one cartoon that I ever watched, and that was Johnny Quest. And the only reason why I watched Johnny Quest is because it was drawn real, the characters were real, the situations were real. Every single thing in the show was believable. It wasn't a coyote chasing a roadrunner around. It wasn't Elmer Fudd with a shotgun. It wasn't Bugs Bunny talking. It was real life. But back when I was growing up, there wasn't any television for me as a kid. There wasn't anything that I could point to or look to growing up. Because back then, Peter Engel had not existed yet on television. Peter Engel, for those of you who know, was a guest of mine created Saturday morning television starting with a show called Saved by the Bell for people of my age back then and younger and it all took off but back then you didn't have anything all I had was maybe witchy poo the banana splits a bunch of things that just didn't even make any sense or matter to me but one thing did matter to me the show the monkeys which uniquely merged music and comedy my first time watching music and comedy because for me watching anything even the three stooges the three stooges all my friends love the three stooges they're beating each other up they're pulling their hair out everybody's laughing i would never laugh my mother had this thing in her bedroom because it was the only place where there was a television and we had a black and white television with pliers on the thing. And there were three channels, basically two VHF channels, for those of you old enough, and one UHF channel with the rabbit ears with tinfoil coming off with black and white TV. And I was in her room next to her bed at the foot of her bed, and I would watch these programs on this black and white television. And she'd serve me food there, and I stayed there so much that she actually nailed a piece of carpet, another piece of carpet right there so I could hang out there. And the Three Stooges, I would watch it because there was nothing else to watch, and I would never laugh, ever laugh at all. And I don't know, for those of you on this podcast, if I've talked about this a little bit, but ever and there was only one time where i laughed laughed out loud and my mother actually came in she said what what just happened you you never laugh at the three stooges what what did they what happened who hit who who knocked who down the stairs and i said there was none of that it was just a line 
She said, what was the line? And I said, well, Larry said to Curly, what do you think? And Mo looked at both of them and said, every time you think, you weaken the nation. <laughs> so what I wanted to say is that when the Monkees television show came out, finally there was something on television that moved me. There was a personality in all of those four people that someone in the country could rally around. There was Davy Jones, who was like the good-looking, kind of like young, heartthrobby guy. There was Peter Tork, who could be argued would be classified today as the technology nerdy kind of looking guy. Not to mention all the cast um, in there, but Mickey Dolenz was kind of a guy, he was just like, I don't know, he just represented this thing that was like part darkness and part light. It was like this weird thing, like I was actually watching somebody who was too cool for school. You know, he might not have been like the Davy Jones, like girl screaming kind of guy, but he was the kind of guy that you looked at and you said, I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy. How cool is it that a guy who plays the drums can also sing and he can be unique and he can be funny, but he can be the straight man. And then the music came on. And for those of you who don't understand, music is so powerful. But if you can combine comedy, which they did with the written words of the show and the actions, with music, you have something that can trump everything. And the evidence is all out there in the world right now. If you look at, like, you know, the biggest musical songs on YouTube that you can find are musical comedy Songs. Now, I'm not saying the Monkees songs were musical comedy, but what I am saying is the music and the comedy together merged together. And when you watch the show, you watch the show for comedy and you watch for music. And I oftentimes think about the kind of things that you look at that have been on YouTube that have like close to a billion or over a billion views, like Gangnam Style by Psy, Thrift Shop by Macklemore, or What Does the Fox Say by Yelvis. You know, these are all songs that are like, probably have three billion views. There's a reason why they have three billion views, because they combine two different genres together to make something special. And so... When I was growing up, that took me, that moved me, because I love music, I love comedy, and it put it together. And it set a tone for me, for my career, uh, and good or bad, that I always knew that I never wanted to stay in one lane. Because I knew if I stayed in one lane, I could live and die in that lane. I could be very successful in that lane. And there's hundreds and thousands of examples of people in the world that just decide to do one thing and they do it well. Whether you're a dentist and you just do that well and that's all you aspire to be and you're the best person at it. Or you're the lawyer that's the best defense attorney there is. Nothing wrong with that if that makes you happy. But for me... And probably millions of people out there, they aspire to do more than one thing. And it doesn't make the people who do one thing bad. It just means that they aspire to do one thing. And for me, the monkeys inspired me to say, hey, you can have it all. You can have comedy and you can have music. And for me, I just wanted to do more different things. I didn't want to just be a comedy club owner. I didn't want to just be a manager. I didn't want to just be a television producer. I didn't want to just be a film producer. And now, 
with this podcast, which I started about a year and a half ago or two years ago, and we're heading up on our 100th episode, which will be with Judd Apatow coming up in June, I feel like I've hit on something else which uh, didn't exist before I started it. But as they say in those lottery commercials, all you need is a dollar and a dream and take a bet on yourself and move forward with what you want to do and you think you can do and don't have any fear regarding it. Because I can assure you from so many years ago when I watched that television show, that inspired me to do more. And I hope that with this podcast and the things that we talk about here, it will inspire all of you to think about the possibilities that you have where you can move forward and do more things as well. So if I could say anything about today, the lesson would be if you have it in you, you have an idea, take the risk, go for it, do more than one thing, and God forbid it fails, guess what? You wake up the next morning and there'll be another idea, another dream, and another success story. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now about the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You're f***ing firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning nose into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Before I get started, I want to let you know about this one persistent guy, Michael Purcell, who kept calling me and traveled to L.A. to meet me. He told me that he created a company 10 years ago called Global Cash Card that figured out a way to make the payroll of any size company a paperless situation, allowing every employee's weekly salary to be instantly loaded anytime, anywhere, stress-free onto their own personal Visa payroll card for free. He went on to tell me that it costs the company around $3 for every paycheck cut, And that means if you're an organization that writes a thousand paper checks every week, 
with his company, you'd save $12,000 a month by using Global Cash Card. And if you do the math, that's $135,000 a year. So go to GlobalCashCard.com right now to schedule live demo, speak to Michael Purcell, check out their system, and see how easy it is for your company to start saving big money today. And in honor of the people out there who listen to this program, at the end of this show and at the conclusion of every single show, every single week until the end of the year, we'll be giving away one free $100 gift card to a randomly selected person who has written a review, good or bad, on the industry standard iTunes comments review section. And that's from all of our friends at Global Cash Card. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am here and so excited and honored to be across from the lead singer of the historic group, The Monkees, actor, musician, television, and theater director, and radio personality, Mickey Dolenz. And I have to give him the proper introduction. So here goes... Mickey Dolenz was born in Los Angeles, California, where he began his career in show business in 1956 on the children's show Circus Boy at just 11 years old. In high school, he was cast in an episode of the NBC drama Mr. Novak and was attending college in Los Angeles when he landed the starring role in NBC's show The Monkees 50 years ago in 1965. <laughs> Dolans was never contacted about his landing the part, and he discovered he had been cast by reading an announcement in Variety. The smash hit series followed a four-piece band comprised of Dolans, Davy Jones, Michael Nesmith, and Peter Tork, and chronicled their adventures as they tried to become rock and roll singers. The show won two Emmy Awards and spawned a real-life following for the band, which went on tour in 1966 to sold-out arenas and theaters. Dolans was not a drummer and learned how to play the drums for the role and was performing to sell-out crowds in under one year. He also wrote a few of the band's self-penned songs and ended up directing and co-writing what turned out to be the show's final episode. After the show concluded, Dolan's recorded and toured with Davy Jones and former Monkey songwriters as Dolan's Jones' voice and heart and wrote and released numerous singles as a solo musician. He went on to perform voiceover work for a number of famous and unbelievable Saturday morning cartoons, including some of my favorites, The Funky Phantom, The Tick, and of course, Scooby-Doo. Dolans and Jones performed in the stage production The Point in London in 1977, leading Dolans to remain in England and produce and direct for stage and television. He directed a stage version of Bugsy Malone, casting a then 14-year-old Catherine Zeta-Jones. In 1986, the popular cable channel MTV rebroadcast episodes of The Monkees to wild reviews, exposing a whole new generation to the show and monkey mania. Freshly back to the States, Mickey joined with former Monkees bandmate Peter Tork to record new tracks for Arista Records. The first single, That Was Then, This Is Now, became the Monkees' first top 20 record since 1968. 
Mickey, Peter, and fellow monkey Davy Jones then subsequently reunited for a stellar 1986 summer tour so successful that it sparked the reissue of all monkeys' classic LPs as well as Pool It on Rhino Records. In 2005, he became the morning disc jockey on the oldie station WCBS-FM New York, where he presided until the station flipped formats. He continues to act as well as direct for the stage and television and has appeared on numerous reunion tours and television specials with the Monkees. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. It is an unbelievable honor and privilege to sit across from your guest and mine, Mickey Dolenz. Wow. That was amazing. Thank you so much for watching. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs> so funny. That was excellent. One, one correction, if uh -oh. you don't mind. We got a correction. <clears throat> one correction. I, I uh, it wasn't me that that read that I'd got the part in in Variety. I was. I think it might have been one of the other guys. I had an agent at the time, uh, because of my uh, history in in TV, doing Circus Boy and all that. And so uh, my agent called me and said, you got the pilot. I didn't even quit school, though, for the, uh, when I heard I got the pilot. I was going to L.A. Trade Tech. I just, uh, in fact, spoke at the 90th year uh, uh, anniversary of Los Angeles Trade Technical College. I was going to be an architect. Um, I decided I was going to be an architect after high school, and I would fall back on show business <laughs> if I couldn't make it as an architect, and that was my plan. And um, But uh, I wasn't stupid, and I would go to auditions and, and did these guest shots on, like you mentioned, a couple of you know TV shows for money and for... But um, I thought I bet about time I, you know, really settle down and get a real career, and it was going to be an architect. And um, I got the pilot, uh, but I didn't quit school. I took ten days off or so for the pilot, uh, and then went back to school. And because I knew that pilots, nine times out of ten, especially back then, they didn't sell. It's that much of a chance of them going there? I'm well, kidding. back then I'm, it was I'm worse. Kidding. Now um, it's not as probably as bad because of all the other outlets of, of distribution. But back then there was three outlets of distribution, three networks. And every year, that year I was up for like three or four pilots um, that I went and auditioned for. One of them did go to pilot. It's called The Happeners, about a Peter, Peter Paul and Mary kind of act. Uh, it didn't go to series. There was another one like a Beach Boy kind of surfing band, and another one was like a, 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 a Mighty Wind, you know, big uh -huh. family thing with like 30 people in, in a folk kind of show. That didn't go to pilot. The Monkees, you know, went to pilot. And when we got the order uh, uh, from NBC for the, for the series, then I finally, I finally quit, uh, quit school. Now, and the rest is a hysterectomy. <laughs> you know, I think of the, I think of every hacky comedian. Why do they call it hysterectomy? It should be herterectomy. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. That was. Yay. I will edit that out of That's the podcast. Right. <laughs> so, uh, what I love to do, uh, Mickey, is I love to go way, way back. So let's go way back to you growing up in Los Angeles. Tell me the neighborhood you grew up in. What was your family? Were they, you know, were they rich? Were they poor? Sure. Your parents, what they do? And what was your first inspiration back then as a single-digit kid to want to be an actor? 
Uh, well, I didn't. I, I was a single-digit kid, and at that age, you very seldom kind of know what you want to do. I, I certainly didn't. Um, my, but my parents were both in the business. They were, uh, so I grew up in the business in that sense. What, what were they doing? Acting. They met on doing a play on Hollywood Boulevard somewhere. Uh, my mom was uh, a theater major from Austin, Texas, who had come out to Hollywood to be a star and literally packed up all her stuff in her car with her mom and her brother and came out to Hollywood, an ingenue at 19 years old or something like that, and came out to, to be a Hollywood uh, star. So they're both... The My one, sorry? So your father was also... My father was born in Italy. Uh, I'm first-generation Italian uh, on, on that side. Uh, he was born in Italy and, you know... The, uh, 1908 or something like that he he left Italy ran out of got out of Italy because he didn't want to join Mussolini's army became a waiter on a cruise ship or something and we, we've tried to piece it together ended up ended up in Cuba swam to America or something and but wanted to be an actor and um and he did. He became an actor in Los Angeles um, of old school Errol Flynn kind of uh, character George Dolans was his name, and he did a. Uh, he got quite a claim to fame. He did The Count of Monte Cristo in the fifties, uh, pretty big network television show. So he wanted to be an actor. So anyway, I came out of a, a showbiz family. But having said that, it wasn't your typical L.A. Hollywood showbiz family. We didn't live in Hollywood. We didn't live in Beverly Hills. We lived way out in the valley, where I still live. And we lived on little ranchettes. I was born on a chicken ranch in in, in Tarzana, uh, and my dad was a working actor, and also uh, making a, li a living doing carpentry and and woodworking, and a maitre d at a very famous uh, restaurant club in Los Angeles called the Trocadero. Uh, he was the maitre d, the the head honcho, and the story goes that one night he was in the men's room actually taking a pee and Howard Hughes comes in <clears throat> and says you're a good he was a really good looking classic you know leading man 30s 40s kind of you know character and Howard Hughes says uh, you want to be an actor and he says yes I I'm I'm doing plays and I'm studying and Howard Hughes signed him to a contract and he was one of those you know, have contracted players. Howard Hughes never made any movies. He made one or two with my father. And um, I can't remember, you know, uh, Yvonne DiCarlo or somebody. And um, Yvonne DiCarlo from the uh, Munsters. Yeah, and I think my, my dad made a movie with her and Faith Demurg and all these, you know, classic. But Howard Hughes never really, you know, he developed a huge... A huge studio. So, but my dad did pretty well. And and um, did you hang out on the sets? Yeah. And so my earliest recollections are going on the set with my dad. And when I'd go to school, and they'd say, "What does your father do?" I'd say, "Well, he mows the lawn a lot because they only work <laughs> once in a while." But I'd go to the set. I thought everybody's father was an actor. I had no other, nothing else to relate to. So uh, we grew up in this showbiz family, but not your typical classic Hollywood stage mom kind of family. Uh, very down to earth, very homegrown. We lived on these little ranches and I had horses and had gardens and I had to clean the pool every day. And uh, 
my father, old school Italian. We didn't hang out with people in Beverly Hills or in Hollywood. None of that. Um, but that was the family business. So from an early age, I remember never being pushed, coerced, never any of that eyes and teeth, honey, eyes and teeth, never. Uh, but it was my dad. I remember when I was like eight, six or eight years old, he must have said, my agent or there's a producer wants to make a movie. Do you want to, you know, do what I do and, you know, be an actor? And I, I must have said, yeah, sure. <laughs> because I did a screen test at like eight for a film that was supposed to be shot in Mexico uh, by some producers. Um, and I was going <laughs> to play a little Mexican kid. They dyed my hair black, and I had to talk like that, <laughs> which you could never do today. You'd just be shot. <laughs> um, uh, but we did screen tests, and, and they never made the movie because I think the government was overthrown or something in, in Mexico in 1954 or something like that. Um, but that was just the family business. And um, I uh, just went to school and... And, you know, hung out, and my father would do a gig and do that, and he got a series, The Count of Monte Cristo. And then when I was like 10 or 11, I went to, my, my mom said, you want to go to an audition for a TV show? And uh, I said, no, I got a baseball game. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I had a Little League game. And, um, but then I guess she asked again, or I changed my mind. I said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll go. And I went, and I remember the audition to Circus Boy, this NBC series. And I got the, I got the audition. I got the pilot. And uh, what was your role? The Circus Boy. You were the I was lead the star. I was the star of the show, NBC show. Your first audition 19th... you ever go on in your life. You have no acting no, not training, first, but... and you get you you get the lead role. Hey, I uh, I got the lead in this series called Circus Boy. Uh, uh, NBC Screen Gems television show. I don't understand. How do you even know what to do when you go on? Well, the because my family was in the business. I mean, so my were father, they training for you for the well, audition? Were they working with you? Well, I get they must have. I don't remember specifically being trained, or I didn't have an acting coach or or something. But back then, that wasn't that wasn't as common. I mean, especially I was just born into the bit. I followed in my father's footsteps. You know. Like if you're a, music, a banker or a musician or a lawyer, you just pick it up as you go along, I guess, as a child. And uh, so not that uncommon. Um, so I, I must have done okay because I did the audition and screen tests and stuff, and they gave me the role uh, as this little blonde-haired kid in a circus uh, in, at the turn of a century. Uh, that's what the, the show was about. And it was a big show on, on NBC. Now, do you remember back then, like, what the deal was for your role, like, financially, what it was back Oh, nothing. Then? I, you know, it would have been, you know, a few hundred bucks a week or something. That's it, for oh, the yeah. lead role. Yeah, sure. For anybody back then, not not just me. But, you know, we were protected. I was protected by the Jackie Coogan laws. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. But No, why don't you, why don't you tell our audience <laughs> what the Jackie well, Coogan it's, laws are? It's, it, it, if you just Google it, it's... A better explanation than I can do. Jackie Coogan was a famous kid actor back in the 30s and 20s and 30s. Um, and his parents ripped him off, took all his money, and he reached maturity and had nothing. And basically, he was broke. And so I guess it became legislation. And um, 
in the 40s, maybe, I, I want to say, maybe the 40s or so, uh, the, the federal work labor laws, you know, were passed and child stars had to be protected. And so the parents could only get a portion for support and they could only get a portion for expenses. And then the rest had to go into a trust account until the, the kid reached uh, 18 or 21 or something like that. So I was protected, not that I needed it, but you know, I was protected by that. It was, but back then there was there was very very little money and 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 no reruns. No. Was no. there anybody in your pilot of Circus Boy that became a big star from Noah that? Barry Jr. was my uncle. He became he, he was quite a big actor back in the forties and fifties. He became Jim Rockford's uh, father in uh, the Rockford Files. Robert Lowry Jr. A, a big actor at the time, character actor, and some others, and we would have on guests, you know, there'd be guests that would come on, and um, in typical uh, half-hour, you know, dramas in, in, in the 50s and 60s. So I, um, you know, I do remember at the time when I got the part, I, I remember at 10 years old or 11 years old thinking this is a game changer you know I wasn't stupid I knew that the power that a that television had I sensed it I guess and my my parents both being in the business and and uh, that did change everything and I did this series on NBC for uh, three years and uh, and yeah it did it uh, it, it was a ch but we still lived this very very down-home very rural. But you were making more money than your parents at 11, 12, 13 Well, my old. father also had a series, The Count of Monte Cristo. So. But you were basically so, equal yeah. in financial wealth to your yeah. parents at 11 or 12 or 13 years yeah. old. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how much he was making, probably more than I was. And out of 100% of the earnings that you made as a teenager, do you remember what you decided or what went to your parents and what went to you it was legal it was all a, a, a legal thing like know? in other words your friends didn't have the kind of money you had so like how yeah but i don't remember ever getting any of it at the time my parents were you know pretty uh strict about that i mean it wasn't like here just take all this money and and play with it um so it wasn't a situation where as one, one of uh, a funny young comedian uh I know she says uh, she does an impression of Miley Cyrus where uh, Miley's dad says, hey, Miley, why don't you go clean your room? And Miley says, hey, why don't I go clean your bank account? <laughs> no. It wasn't that kind of thing. No, no, no. Got it. Uh, like I say, very down home. Very. The money wasn't anywhere near like the kind of the money that that exists today in, in television or recording or anything like that. Even in the monkeys, you know, the, it's a well-known fact that during the monkeys, we made $400 a week. That's it. 400 a week for the television yeah. show? Each one of you, yeah. favored nations, 400 a show. Yeah, that's it. No residuals, no nothing. Six residuals. It was before the imperpetuity laws. Got it. But that, so did everybody else in those days. Every other show, Gilligan's Island and whatever. Yeah, it was six residuals and about four or 500 bucks a week. But still, you know, back then, before the monkeys, you're in high school. You're the only kid in high school who's on a series. That no, no, I wasn't. 
I wasn't because I lived in L.A. in Hollywood. There was two or three other kids at my high school, at least two or three other uh, ex-child star, you know, Johnny Washburn, who did a series called My Friend Flicka, uh, Bobby Diamond, who did a series called Fury, uh, uh, both, Tom, both, Tom Selleck. Both about horses, right? Yeah, both about horses, yeah. Uh, Tom Selleck. I mean, there, it was not uncommon, I mean, in, in you know, in the area, in Hollywood. So no, Tom was, Selleck was in your high school? He was my high school, yeah. Same class. And um, Mike Curb, a f- very famous, uh, well, music guy and also ex-lieutenant governor of California. So that was not uncommon. I... Um, uh, I went back to school. My parents wisely uh, took me out of school, uh, out of the business uh, after Circus Boy. They sent me to an educational counselor, which essentially was a child psychologist, to find out where I was at emotionally, mentally, academically, because I'd skipped like three grades in private uh, t- uh, tutoring on the set. And I guess the psychiatrist said, you must get him out of the business immediately. <laughs> he is going out of his mind. And um, so they did, wisely. The, the, one of the most important and I think wisest decisions they ever made. They took me out of the business at at four, 14 years old. But because, what, what was wrong with you? Well, I'm, I don't know the, know the details. They never told me. But I suspect that it was, they sensed, and again, they were you know, very down-to-earth kind of people. It's the aftermath of a child star's success that creates the, the problems. And we've, we know all the stories. We've heard of all the people that, that go downhill. And it's the aftermath. It's when, when you're a star and everybody loves you and they're all smiling and waving and stuff. That's pretty easy to, to handle. It's that all of a sudden one day your show's canceled and a week later you're invisible you're like uh why don't they love me anymore and you go to an audition and it's like no rejection rejection now that's tough for anybody at any age but for a kid going into puberty that's tough enough as it is any kid going into puberty is a tough road to hoe and to do that as an ex star now has been (laughs) at 14 and that does, you know, we've, we see it happen all the time. That is what tends to create, you know, enormous problems. And there were many of my peers at that time who, you know, we, we know who they are, that had terrible, terrible problems and, and still do. So my parents wisely took me out of the business and put me back in public school in the San Fernando Valley overnight. Boom. Were there were drugs in high schools back then? No, nothing. Nothing. Oh, this is 1958. You know, there was nothing. No drugs, just alcohol. Kids drinking. No, I don't. Not in high school. No, not nothing. It was pretty, pretty tame. Not even somebody not, smoking well, a cigarette. Life, in my life, uh, well, my I never smoked cigarettes. Uh, my mom smoked, and one day she said, "You want to try it?" And I did, and I was like, "Oh, jeez, that's blech. and never smoked cigarettes. No, in my life, I'm saying. But again, this is, you know, my father, old school Italian. You know, if I if I smoked a cigarette, he'd probably knock me over into your Aerosmith post. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, and my mom, very, you know, down home. Um, I remember they would have a martini 
like an old Cary Grant movie, you know, at night. Um, so no, not in my high school, not in 1958, 59, six. I graduated in 62, and I never had even heard of the word marijuana or, or you know, uh, anything, anything at all. I mean, I'd heard the term, I'd heard the words heroin, you know, but it was all, it was like a million miles away. And so no, in, in high school, it was very naive, very straight in my world, in my life with my, my friends. But, you know, I was already getting into science and I was in electron, I was in electron, electronic shop. You know, I was getting into, you know, and wood shop and metal shop, which I still do all that. You know, I was getting into, you know, other things. I was doing, you know, play production and uh, a bit. But they took me out of the business entirely, and it was very, very, very smart thing to do for years. It wasn't until at the end of high school, beginning of uh, after I graduated, that I started to dabble a little bit again. And, and that's when you got another NBC show. Well, before that, the monkeys, I had graduated high school. My father passed away the next year, which was a tragic thing for a 17-year-old. So the family's in a bit of a guffuffle, uh, and I'm wandering a bit. And I graduated high school, and I started community college here and a little bit here, and I was didn't know what I was going to do. And a friend of mine actually said, because uh, he knew that I was really into uh, – uh, building stuff and always have been had tools and a workshop and was always into my because my father had been I learned from him he said you know let's become architects and uh, we'll, we'll go to school at LA Trade Tech uh, down in Los Angeles Los Angeles Trade Technical College we'll become we'll get our degrees in architectural drafting and we'll start a like remodeling architectural company and I was like, wow, that is a great idea. And I just went for it. I drove from the Valley, downtown L.A. I was just there the other night for the 90th anniversary. I spoke at L.A. Trade Tech Technical College because they found out that I'd been going there as a student in 1960. That would have been 63 and 64. And I was going to be an architect and I was going to fall back on show business if I couldn't make it as an architect. Um, that was my plan. And then, uh, but I wasn't stupid. I was going to auditions. I was... Um, Why did your parents suddenly allow you to... Now, it wasn't until after... Well, by now, I'm 18, so they didn't have as much... But when your dad passed away, was that when you started going to auditions again? Yeah, about that time. I'd done something like the last year of high school. I'd gone to a got an agent and done an episode of Mr. Novak or, you know, I did a, a Playhouse 90 written by Rod Serling with Jack Klugman and Art Carney. And I, but it was more like a summer job. I was like a way to make a little money, <laughs> you know, do a little acting gig. Um, I, you know, it was the family business and no one objected. Uh, but it, I didn't wasn't going to Hollywood professional school or doing acting lessons or or something. It was like summer jobs, and um, I went. I, I but I was passionate about doing this architectural thing, and um, and then uh, the 
uh, that year of 65, uh, I was going up for shows, going up for pilots every year because I wasn't stupid. But that year, 65, there was three or four of, of these uh, shows, which I mentioned, and um, one of them was the Monkees. And uh, uh, I went up for it, and, but I didn't even... Like I said, I didn't even quit school. And so, and for those of you who don't know and realize this, this is one of the most amazing things about this story is that, you know, as a kid, when you're watching the show The Monkees and you're listening to music, you just naturally assume that this is a band that they found and, uh, you know, and they gave them their own show. But Did you pe- also think that William Shatner was the commander of a spaceship no <laughs> <laughs> well that was the that was you're right that was a, a fairly unique thing that happened with the monkeys and uh, it's happened now since a number of times glee is a good example of a show that's about an imaginary glee club but we understand the, the format now but back then that had never happened before but when you watch glee there's nobody in the world that thinks hey this is a glee club that they just put together for the show Everybody knows that they're actors who were, there was an audition process. Exactly. When we I was know a, that now. When I was a kid, there was no, I never knew. I mean, and as, as a matter of fact, I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't know until I met you. And when I did research on you and what you were doing, I couldn't believe, because I don't know of any other example not from there, then. There is about a band being formed from a television show. I mean, well, you didn't even, I don't even know how you auditioned and got it because... I was singing, I played guitar. My 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 uh, instrument, uh, since I had been about 10 or 12 years old, was Spanish classical guitar. My father had got me interested in that. That was at like 12 or so, uh, I, but I started playing Spanish guitar. And then I would take it to parties and uh just to get the women yep to get you know to impress the girls and they were like do you know any kingston trio (laughs) (laughs) and i'm playing andrew segovia and they're like do you know tom dooley so i'm (laughs) oh yeah i oh i'll learn that (laughs) by next week i knew tom dooley hang down your head so i started playing folk guitar and I played that for years, all 12, 13, 14. All through high school, I was doing Kingston Trio. And and then, of course, Bob Dylan came along, and everybody was getting into folk music. So by the time I was 17, 18 years old, it was folk music. And then it morphed into rock and roll. My audition piece for the Monkees on the guitar was Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. You had to be able to sing and play and act to get in the audition. Now, keep in mind, now, for those of you who know the song Johnny Be Good, I, I think that it could be safe to say that even the artist uh, that sang the song and did the music wouldn't say that was his, uh, he'd put in a time capsule as the best representation of his voice. It had nothing to do with that. It was just that was a song that I was singing in cover bands because I was doing cover bands. I had a one group called Mickey and the One-Nighters playing a bowling alley in, in <laughs> El Monte. And I had another group called Missing Links, and it was a cover band. Uh, like the Beatles were a cover band, essentially. And we were doing 
I was doing, you know, House of the Rising Sun was my big party piece and and Johnny Be Good and Money by Barrett Strong and Walking the Dog and it was bar 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 time and this was before monkeys this is two or three years before the monkeys but the i mean the role you're auditioning for when you get the when you go on the audition for the monkeys uh you're the drummer but you're no not yet i wasn't when i went but what was the role you auditioned for you just well they had a script i still have the pilot script it's spelled m-o-n-k-e-y-s and there was four characters named biff Joe, Frank, and Sam, or whatever it was. They were totally four other... Now, was it a very prestigious writer at the time? The, the producer Paul Mazursky. Paul Mazursky. Wrote the pilot. Down and out in Beverly Hills. Yeah, or Paul Mazursky, the famous comic. He had a partner at the time, Larry Tucker. Uh, uh, Paul Mazursky and Larry Tucker wrote the pilot. Bob Rafelson, the big director, became a huge director, created the show along with uh, Bert Schneider. Um, there was a huge staff of writers on the show eventually. But the pilot was uh, Paul Mazursky, Larry Tucker, uh, Gerald Gardner, De Caruso were big television story editors. They also had a hand in it. Awesome. I'm sorry I kept interrupting. Does it take me to the audition process? So, yeah. You go in. Right. Is it a cattle call or are there a bunch of well, people? Not for me because I'd already had a television series, you see. So... One when one has a television series, one doesn't go to a cattle call. <laughs> I had a private audition with the producers. So you went right to producers. Oh yeah, of course, yeah, and um, uh, and like I say, I mean, it was very apparent that this was a different show. Bob Ravelson and Bert Schneider were not much older than I was, maybe only a few years, which was unheard of at the time to be a you know, in your 30s to be a television producer. So and when you walked out of the audition, were you saying to yourself, I got this? No, 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 no. It, it was much more involved than that. It was, you know, it was a lot like auditioning for musical theater, which is going to come around to what the Monkees was like, which is the Marx Brothers. The Monkees was a television show about a band, that didn't exist. It was an imaginary band. It existed on that set, and it existed in on television. And those characters existed as imaginary characters. It became a band when we went, went on the road, a lot like Pinocchio becoming a, a little boy. That's kind of the fascinating, you know, essence of it. But essentially, it was a Marx Brothers. They screened Marx Brothers movies for us uh, during the rehearsal and, and you know, uh, uh, filming process, and, and we took improvisation. But you had to be able to, to sing and act and play an instrument to get through the audition. So clearly they had in mind that this was going to be something besides a bunch of actors miming or, you know, uh, uh, pretending. So you did screen tests with other actors, oh, pairing you with all different kinds of people. Got, oh, it went on for weeks. All right, so you keep going, you keep getting asked back, getting yeah. asked back. Call back, call back, and call back, yeah. when was the first time where you were standing in a room with the other three people? I don't remember. You know? I remember Davey uh, a bit, and I think I do because we had a lot in common. He had been a child star on Broadway doing Oliver. Uh and so I think 
I remember him because we, we, we had this in common. We'd both been in the business for, for years. Uh, I don't remember Mike and Peter from the audition process, frankly. Um, but it went on a long time, and it, much longer than it did for a normal series. A normal pilot, you walked in, you did the lines out of the script, you got a call back, you maybe did a screen test, and you got it or you didn't. And uh, in this case, one, uh, one screen test was improvisational sort of uh, interview kind of thing, which I was not very good at. I was not used to that that form, you know, I was used to getting a script and having dialogue and, and repeating it. There was a, music, a musical one, like where I did Johnny Be Good. Um, there was scene study, there was where you learned scenes, and then at, by that time there was maybe 16 uh, finalists, if you will. And <clears throat> I remember being paired up with others. Uh, main, I remember Davy. There was some others that I recall, and th these screen tests are around. We show them in in our concert. We show some of these screen tests. It was hilarious. So that was a, it was very classic Hollywood audition process, frankly, and um, but not for a not for a, a, a TV pilot. So they clearly had had you know a, a vision in mind that they were going to create something that was very very unique at the time and who was the first one to be cast or were you all cast oh, at no the idea. same time i have no idea that and, would be a question for the producers and do you did you ever hear stories of somebody who went down to the wire and they didn't get it and they became a, a big star well, nobody that went down to the wire went on to be a star. I became friends with some of the ones that went down to the wire, others. Uh, but the one of the classic stories is Stephen Stills was, was up for it. Uh, but they said no. Uh, he's the one that told Peter Tork, because they were friends, about the audition. Um, Paul Peterson, my friend, uh, from the Donna Reed show, I remember he was up for it. Um, and probably a lot of others that I don't even know about, but I wouldn't be privy to that, to that information. That's cool. And so um, you find out you get the gig, and you report to this pilot that's being uh, shot. And um, but what I'm confused about, and I think you should share with our audience: so you're just going in. All of you are going in for a musical thing. You improvise. How does it come about that they decide, hey, we're going to take this guy with the guitar singing Johnny Be Good and we're going to make him the drummer and lead singer of the group when all of the people, all of the four went in and sang and played instruments? Why did they decide that you were going to be a drummer? And do you remember that conversation of no. it's almost like a baseball player who's no. been who's been training for yeah. first base his whole life, and they say, you know what, you're going to be playing center yeah. field now. Exactly like that. And I was not privy to that conversation. I was, I showed up, and they said, "Hi, Mickey Dolans. This is David. This is it was a, it was a wardrobe. Uh, the first time I remember meeting the other guys was a wardrobe fitting, which is typically the first thing that happens when you do a pilot." And it was Mickey, this is Mike, this is Peter, this is David. Uh, hi, hi, nice to meet you. Great guys, cool. Oh, I remember you, yeah, yeah. Um, Mickey, you're gonna be the drummer. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Um, I, You know, I play guitar, and they said, yeah, but we have 
more too many guitar players because Mike plays guitar and sings and and writes songs. Peter played well. Peter played every, plays every instrument you can imagine. He's like the most uh, consummate musician of all of us. Is Peter? He plays every instrument. Uh, David was kind of you know going to be the front man kind of guy with a tambourine, and uh, they said you're the drummer. And I said cool. Where do I learn? Similar to what I said when they cast me as circus boy and they said, you're going to ride an elephant. And I said, sure, where? Where do I learn? Because I came out of that mentality. I came out of the, the Hollywood studio system where they said, we're going to do a movie and you're going to be a scuba diver. And you would start scuba diving lessons, you know, immediately. But I wasn't starting from scratch. I had been a musician. I played classical guitar so I could read music. I'd been in rock and roll bands. I had sat and played on the kit, you know, in my bands, you know, just goofing around. So I wasn't starting from scratch. And, and I had quite a bit of time, you know, to, to practice and to learn. And after the pilot sold, uh, of course, I, I really f focused, you know, because I had to start recording Within, you know, but you're shooting the pilot. What was the song or songs that they featured in the pilot? Now, granted, there's the opening song to every uh, mm. every um, title sequence was "Hey Hey We're the Monkeys," right. so you have to record that. It wasn't a thing where you were doing a live performance like a video and it was playing. No. You record that, and there were montages over. It, but you had to record it with somebody else playing the instruments in that and you were just singing well yeah at the time for the pilot yeah because there was no way we could have they had, they had recorded the soundtrack for for the pilot long before they cast us they had done all the music and they were like building up the production of the show so i did vocals you know i would uh, i went in and did vocals and davy went in and and did vocals but so it depends. Sorry. So what was the you, got, you always for the first pilot? You had hey hey we're the monkeys, which was the I want to be free. I want to be free was the uh, one song. One the there songs. was a closing song yeah, too, right? I can't remember, huh? Isn't when there always like two or three songs and thing. You yeah, had the opening. every episode. One of the songs for the pilot was "Let's Dance On." It was all Tommy Boyce, Bobby Hart stuff. They were responsible as producers and writers to come up with the material. <laughs> Uh, initially for everything and 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 very responsible for the music the writing and the sound you know they came up with that which producers do i mean that's sort of their responsibility they in those days especially you you would take a band that was maybe a little rough and raw around the edges and and they would sort of nurture a and r it was called and producing and they would create a sound, you know, a little more guitar, a little less this, more of that, and and Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart were incredibly instrumental in in creating that sound for that television show. And the pilot gets picked up on NBC. And what's the time slot for the pilot? Nine, seven thirty Monday night. Got it. Mm. So you start shooting the episodes, and the show goes on the air. And what happens to your life? And what happens <laughs> after the show broke? Well. Uh, it, it didn't. It did not change uh, 
initially because um, you live in Hollywood, you're doing a show here, especially in the 60s, and there wasn't social media, of course. No one knew where you were, who you were. It was you went to went to the set and you came home and you went out and you had had a meal. But tell our audience the first time you went out somewhere and you're like, right. Holy shit. I do remember what that. What the hell is going on? <laughs> right. So this is like way after we'd started we'd started filming. It was the show went on the air in September of 66. And uh, we're working 10, 12 hours a day on the show. And then I'm recording at night, you know, two or three lead vocals a night at RCA. And we're rehearsing on the weekend for the upcoming tour. Not a lot, a whole lot of time to do anything else, certainly not get out and about. Well, the show went on the air September. The record became a huge hit, and we knew that. You know, I knew the record, the album. Uh, uh, sorry, the album and Take the Last Train to Clarksville. Uh, that was the first one. That one. was the first song. That was the first one. And we knew that. I mean, I knew that it had gone to number one because they were telling me. But, you know, in L.A., it's not quite the same as when you're, you know, in the provinces. So I am. Um, that Christmas, uh, December of 66, uh, they gave us a week off, a hiatus for Christmas. And I'm living in a little house, you know, somewhere uh, rented. And um, uh, I, I'm going I'm gonna go out and buy my Christmas presents and go up see my family up in San Jose where they'd moved to. Uh, and I jump in my car and I have my little shopping list and I screamed down to the mall in the valley where I'd shopped all my life, this fashion square down in the valley. Um, for years, I'd been there shopping with my family for Christmas. And I get out of my car. I have one week to, like, do all this stuff. And I run in through the big glass doors, and I so remember this. And all of a sudden, all these people start running at me, screaming. I thought it was a fire. And I'm standing at the door holding it open going, calm down, don't panic, don't run, wait, take, don't panic. And I realized they're running at me. All these kids and people and adults, they're running at me. And I had to get in my car and leave. I was really pissed off. I'm like, I, I got to do my shopping here. And I had to send uh, my roadie or somebody to go do the shopping. I, and th so that's the first moment. It wasn't until we went on tour years, you know, in, at the next summer, really, that that it really became apparent what an impact it had had on the, on the American, you know, cultural landscape. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of people following us and screaming and yelling all the time. So you, the, the last train to Clarksville goes number one. The album, I believe, went to number one, I yep. thought. Yep. And, and so you plan a tour. Now, the plan a tour, when you've never physically played together, really. Oh, we were playing every... But not, I mean, not in you're, front of you're the public. rehearsing. Rehearsing, yes. But you're not. You never played a live gig in front of an audience. Not, not together. We had all individually. That's which what helped, I'm saying. Thank goodness, we, Mike had played in, in you know in bands. Peter had. David had sang. I'd been in these bands. So, thank goodness that helped a little bit. But never together in front of an audience. And they and, plan a tour. And do they do they let you do a warm up gig somewhere in a bar somewhere before you go on tour? No. Nope. No. All they, right. So they plan the tour. 
tell me the size of the venues of the tour and how many cities you did your they first were, tour. They were arenas. Um, you did first, NBA arena style or the kind of arenas like the Springfield Civic Center, which were like 7,000 to 10,000. Yeah, in those days, yeah. that Because back then, a lot of you guys don't uh, probably don't know this, and I didn't know it either when I was growing up. In my area was the Springfield Civic Center, and it was like 7,000. Right. And there were venues like this all over the country, but mm. there weren't any. The NBA really wasn't in existence. Right. Hockey was in six cities, so there weren't a lot of these kind of arenas. So you had theaters that were between 1,000 and 3,000 seats, and then you had maybe baseball and football stadiums right. so there wasn't anything so the arenas back then were the seven to ten thousand right. seaters so you planned the tour your initial tour was for arenas yes and so your first tour so take take me the through how show, many cities you do and where the first oh, show I, is i have no idea how many there were i don't remember i don't remember do you remember who Not your opening clip, act I remember was the, our opening act was Jimi hendrix experience Okay, folks, I just dropped the mic for the first time. I have it written down here that Jimi Hendrix opened up. I yeah. didn't know it was the first. Yeah, it was the first. Yeah, he was our first opening act. Yeah, um, uh, I'll tell you that story in a minute. But the, the first show was in Hawaii. And I think the producers like said, well, if it's really bad, <laughs> no one will know because it's Hawaii. I know and that. in 1968, that was a long way away. I know so, that arena in Hawaii that you worked. Yeah, the it's big like, H-I. Yeah, it's uh, like, a, uh, like an 8,000-seater. Yeah, H-I-C, I think it was yeah. called. I, I'm not sure it's still there, but it, it was a big 8,000-seater. So they put us in the uh, H-I-C arena. And we had never played in front of the public, really. How many songs were on your set list? I don't remember. You know, quite a few. I mean, we played for, for quite a while. A lot longer than the Beatles did. I think they did 20 minutes in that first tour or something like that. No, I think we played longer than that. Um, I don't think Jimmy opened on that show. I think he joined us when we... Pretty sure he joined us when we got back to the states. I don't remember exactly the chronology. This is no uh, no uh, disrespect to the monkeys or anything else, but for a comic, that's like it's like having a comedian who's who has mainstream success, huge mainstream success. Now I'm trying to think somebody who's like a Russell Peters, let's say, who has worldwide success. He might not get the cred that he deserves because he was made through the internet. And through the things he was doing and through different situations that happened with his YouTube videos that blew him up worldwide. And so other comics didn't really understand what was happening. And that would be like putting him on and having Chris Rock open up for him. It would be very hard for him to follow no matter how great he was, no matter how number one he was in the world, to follow the kind of artistry of a Chris Rock. How do you follow Jimi Hendrix? Well, it, first of all, it was two very, very different styles. That's what I'm saying. Of, of music. And yeah, it was obviously, you know, many would perceive it as a mismatch. It was my idea. And I'll tell you the story now since you brought it up. <laughs> I had seen him as a sideman uh, in New York. In, at, in the village. In the village, playing uh, guitar. Was for, it the Ha Ha Go Go? Yeah, or? something like that. Yeah. Like, uh, for for John Hammond, he was, and I'd been invited down to see John Hammond, uh, and uh, they said you got to see this guitar player. He's incredible. He plays guitar with his teeth, and that's what he what I <laughs> knew him as. This guy that plays the guitar with his teeth. I didn't even remember being told his name. 
And sure enough, I go down there, and I'm sitting right in front of the stage, and it's a great act and great music, and there's, you know, this guy playing, you know, and just playing and playing, and then with his teeth. Months later, I'm at the Monterey Pop Festival, and obviously, he during that period, had gone to England, and he'd met Chaz Chandler, who had manufactured the Jimi Hendrix experience, <laughs> if you will, put him together with Mitch and Noel, who Chaz also knew, thought this would be a great act, and sort of put them together. Um, and then they'd obviously come back to the States, and they were getting a lot of traction, a lot of heat. And they're at the Monterey Pop Festival, and there's The Who, and there's Mamas and Papas, and there's, you know, Ravi Shankar, and all these people. And I'm sitting there, you know, front row center, and I'm and all of a sudden, on comes these three guys in this incredible costumery and attitude. And I go, that's the guy that plays guitar with his teeth. I recognized him. And sure enough, he starts playing with his teeth. Uh, great act. Great act. But it was an act. And I knew it was an act. And he knew it was an act. And the Who was an act. And the Monkees was an act. And I thought, wow, that'd be a great opening act. Very theatrical. I love the music. It was like, you know, because I'm a 23, 24-year-old guy, you know. I'm not listening to monkey music. I'm listening to the Stones and the Beatles, you know. That was who I was listening to. My fans were listening to the stuff I was doing. But I'm into, you know, I was listening to Wes Montgomery and, and classical music or... You know, I liked uh, Mose Allison and, and I liked, uh, you know, uh, Otis Redding and, and stuff. So I'm thinking, wow, it's a great theatrical act. And, I, and we were looking for an opening act at the time. And I mentioned it to the producers and they called his people and they called their people and all the people talked together. Somebody must have thought it was a good idea because sure enough, a few months later, he's, he's the opening act. But it was it was weird. I do this bit in my show uh, uh, frequently where I describe all this, and then I say, and so Jimi Hendrix would come out and go, this is what it's like, Jimi Hendrix opening for the Monkees, and the band starts playing Purple Haze, and I start singing, Purple Haze, come in my brain, little things that don't mean the same, acting funny, and I don't know why. Excuse me, we want Davy, we want the Monkees, Mickey. Davy, and that's that's what happened. It was very it was very embarrassing because we're in the wings watching this incredible talent, you know. And so he did a few shows, and and he broke a record on the tour, and he he went off and started headlining. Of course, we had uh, Ike and Tina Turner open for us, The Fifth Dimension, uh, in '86. It was Weird Al Yankovic. Uh, Debbie Gibson opened for us, you know. I bet you learned about drugs with Hendrix. No, I, you know, I never, you know, touch wood. Well, I know, think the I thing, had my experiences. Listen, how many people were derailed? You mentioned Jimi Hendrix. I mean, he's not alive today because he did drugs. Yeah. So you stayed away from it for some reason. Well, no, not entirely. You know, don't get me wrong. You know, I, you know, smoked a few acres of <laughs> Columbia. Um, but I, there is, there was something. There was my mom used to say I had a guardian angel. I like to think of it as more like a governor, 
and I had this governor, I guess, that at, at times would just bring me back. I'd go up to the edge of the cliff, and there would be a, something that said, okay, far enough, pull me back. And I always have had that. So, no, I never got into much, anything desperately heavy. And so you're selling out this tour. Now, were you making money now off the tour? Not a lot. The producers had promised us a lot, and... I won't get into that, but no, not a lot. You know, we never made much. The record deal was a typical record deal of the time, and no rec- recording artists made much money on the record deals of the time. So out of 100% of all the money that came in beside mer- with, with merchandising and tickets, We never got any merchandise money. Not Zero. A cent, not a cent on any of the, the toys and the things and stuff. And on the dates themselves, let's say for every $100 that came in, how much did he pay? Oh, I have no idea. Couldn't tell you. So you had nobody in business. Your parents were in business. They knew the business and nobody protected you? No, because they had discouraged us from having representation. I'll put it like that. So we, we never had representation. We were represented by the producers and the owners of the show. Did you ever find out like one time where you're hanging out with Davy Jones and... You see a check of Davy Jones's, or he says, "Wow, I just got paid this amount for this," and you're like, "Well, wait a second, I, I oh no, I we all got paid. the same, but it wasn't a lot. I mean, compared to what you know, in those days, you know, <laughs> the four hundred dollars a week was a lot of money to a twenty year old kid. But uh, I mean, but I mean, you're the most." successful band in the world your number one album but we didn't own it and we still don't and uh, you know the the name but they needed you to go out and perform it yeah Yeah. without you performing it there's no money no well on the performance side yeah not the recording side of the the so you never renegotiated your deal for personal appearances we tried we tried but by that time the whole thing was kind of you know the whole project if you go back and look the entire Monkey Project only lasted for a very, very short period of time. I was doing a musical in New York, Aida, the Elton John, Tim Rice musical. And I'd been starring in that for like almost a couple of years on the uh, national tour and then on, on Broadway. And I was sitting, this is in like 2002 or 2003, something like that. And I was m- sitting in my dressing room, uh, adding up all the shows I'd done, all the performances. Uh, eight shows a week, week after week for like almost two years. And I figured out that I had worked on that musical longer than I worked on The Monkees. It was a very, very short period of time. How many episodes of The Monkees? 56. 56, and how many tours did you do? Only two. How many albums? Well, that was like seven or eight. Seven or eight albums. And a lot of recording, but only a couple of tours. And... Only fifty, well, fifty-six episodes. Now that would be like four years of a of a series nowadays. But why at the time th- it was only two years. Why do you think it all ended? <clears throat> well, the show was canceled. NBC. But the music. Well, the music. After the show was canceled, you understand there was no monkeys. There was no office. There was no management. There was no producers. There was no mechan. Excuse me, mechanism. Uh, unlike say Apple for the Beatles or the Stones management or a group that has a record company and management and a big office and a whole mechanism going on. 
at, when the show was canceled um, and the production company, Raybert Productions, which had created the show, um, there wasn't anybody driving the train, excuse the pun. We were kind of on our own if we wanted to go out. And to this day, if we want to go out and tour as the monkeys, we got to make a deal with the record company. Now it's Rhino Records. Thank God, because they're doing a really great job of keeping the catalog alive. But if I wanted to go out and say, create a new TV show, I have to go get the rights. Same as William Shatner. He can't go out and make a Star Trek movie. Paramount owns the, that, that franchise. And you know, they, so now what happens is somebody wants to do a monkey thing. They call me, they call Mike, they call Peter, or they ha they would call David and say, do you want to go on tour? And I'd say, I would say, make me an offer. Because <laughs> we never owned the rights, the logo, the name, the franchise. God, all the monkeys songs are drowning in the ocean. You can only save one. Which one do you say? Oh, wow. Great question. I've never been asked that one before. Boy. Whew. I would say probably Pleasant Valley Sunday, Carol King. And how did Carol King, like, was that a song that she wrote for you? For me, yeah. Wow. Well, it, well having said that, they were part, Carol King and Jerry Goffin, of course, brilliant partner. Uh, Barry Mann, Cynthia Weil, Boyce and Hart wrote some of the biggest hits we ever had. And like I say, created the sound. Um, uh, Harry Nielsen had his first hit with us. Uh, David Gates wrote for us. Paul Williams, Neil Diamond had, we had our biggest hit, I'm a Believer, Neil Diamond. They were all part of the Screen Gems publishing Brill Building with Donnie Kirshner. The famous Brill Building. The famous Brill Building in, in New York, and then they had a Brill Building West out here. And they were writing songs on demand. I mean, Donnie Kirshner would say, there's basically, did you see Beautiful, the Carol King musical yet? No. Well, when you do, you get a chance, because there's a little scene in there where Carol and Gar Jerry are sitting there, and Donnie Kirshner says, there's this new TV show that Screen Gems is doing called The Monkeys, and want you to write stuff for it. And this is Donnie Kirshner with Don Kirshner, which yeah. was Don Kirshner's yeah. rock concert yeah, right. later on. Yeah. After. You know, I, I'm a believer. When I listen to that song, I think of it as a song that appeared to be as difficult to sing or on par as difficult to sing as Promises, Promises huh? was for Dionne Warwick. <laughs> Am I wrong? It was a tough one. Yeah, I remember. Believer was, was tough. A lot of range on, on it. Some of them weren't as, as tricky. You know, they didn't have as much of a range. Pleasant Valley had a hell of a range, still does. I do them all in the original key still. Um, going Down was was a tricky one. Um, uh, I, I was doing so many you know, like I say, two or three a night sometimes, you know, with with very little uh, rehearsal period. I listen now and I go, oh, I could have done a little better on that uh, one. But I was shooting the TV show 10 hours a day and then having to go and record. And so, but, you know, I feel so blessed to have had that stable of writers. I mean, you think about it to have them writing songs just for me. And I'd go over and Carol would bring a song over or I'd hear a demo or something like that. And that was ama I mean, amazing to have that stable of, of songwriters, you know, writing that, that library of music, you know. Well, and the proof's in the pudding. They, they, they stand up, you know, to this day. 
They do. So we don't have much time left, so I'm going to do a little word association with you. I'm going to mention a name of something or somebody, and uh, I'd love to you to, to say anything that comes to mind or any little quick story or something. And then I'd like to wrap up with my, my three questions that I always wrap up with at the end, and then you'll run out of here violently. <laughs> okay. Word association, right? The Beatles. Oh, you met them. I don't know if I have a word. I met all of them. I, I knew Ringo probably best and John. And then I also knew Paul and, and George. Uh, you know, I, I don't have a word that I could, one word. I was just, I was a huge fan. I, that's all I can say, you know. I remember when, when Sergeant Pepper came out, we, we were shooting the show. And um, we stopped. Mike... Uh, somebody sent a runner to the music store to get the album when it came out that day, brought it back, and we stopped production on the show. Because I'd been at a few of those sessions, but the one I remember the best is I went to the tracking session for Good Morning, Good Morning. And it just, and I, uh, that's a whole other story in itself. Um, And uh, I remember it it to this day and I actually when I directed that episode of the monkeys the last one of the of this that I wrote and directed I called or somebody called Paul or somebody and said can we can I use that song and I have that song in my episode of the monkeys the first time they had ever let one of their songs be used in any other any other capacity Jim Carrey I liked him a lot I saw a lot of me in him you know and I don't know his history. I don't know where he came from. But I was a fan, certainly certainly of all the early stuff. It was rumored that you might have auditioned for a part in Batman. Oh, no. You know, I don't know where that started. I, I, I heard that, that uh, somebody had mentioned me for that part, but I never auditioned. No for worries. It. I would have loved to. Let's talk about another urban myth, Charlie Manson. You, you mentioned I'm afraid him. I'm responsible for that urban myth. I, um, uh, I'm told, and I don't remember this because, you know, it was way back in the 80s or seven, you know, late 80s. Or, I came over to L.A. from England, and I did a, uh, a radio interview at K-Rock with Rodney Bingenheimer. And... Uh, I'm told that what happened was is he's, he asked me that question of who auditioned for the monkeys. And I was saying, oh, well, it was, you know, Stephen Stills and Paul Peterson and Paul Williams, the so- singer-songwriter, and Charlie Manson. It was a joke. I was, like, just riffing. And it just got out like, like you know, a virus, like, like Ebola. I do not believe that happened. I asked one of the producers years later, and he said he did not remember. Now, having said that, Charlie Manson was around at the time, he, you know, with, what's his name, uh, the, you know, the Beach Boy guys, and he was trying to make it and singing and writing songs, and that would have been a very different group, Mickey, Davey, Peter, and Charlie. <laughs> that would have been a very interesting Take the last train to Spawn Ranch, and I'll meet you at... <laughs> Another urban myth, possibly. Henry Winkler, the Fonz. That is true. Uh, it was Why down to me and him. It was, it was a callback, final callback, uh, me and Henry for the Fonz. Uh, it was a mid-season replacement show. Um, happy days. Yeah, happy days. And it had uh, some show had fallen out, and Gary Marshall had been put together this show like... 
that. And I was up for it. I went into a couple of auditions and went for the callback. I don't remember Henry being there, but he says, and we've talked about this over the years, he remembers walking in and seeing me there and saying, oh, shit, I'm never going to get this. Mickey Dolan's is here. But thank God he did. I would not have been nearly as great. Tina Turner. Well, she opened for us. Yeah, I... I remember, you know, we hung out a bit with her and Ike, and, and uh, I was a huge fan, you know, of both of them. So I. Uh, What's fascinating in the 60s when, you know, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and social unrest and the tension between African American people and, and white people, and your opening acts were Ike and Tina Turner, The Fifth Dimension, and Jimi Hendrix. Was there any racism between the bands? Any, like any tension? Because during that time, between it was them all, or between us? Between the acts, the you well, know. no. But in my world, there never was. In my my heroes, you know, just by the the the, the virtue of the kind of music I liked. You know, I did Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. My heroes were Sam Cooke. I just saw Johnny Mathis the other night at, at Disney. Uh, that was a huge influence on me. But I don't ever remember even hearing the word racist. But then again, I'm growing up in a fairly cosseted, isolated environment here where, to me, my heroes were, uh, you know, like I say, uh, 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 Ch uh, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, um, but also Jerry Lee Lewis. But to me, they were all like the same. It had nothing, not in my world, it had nothing to do with, with race at all. And so when they said opening act, you know, it was, you know, just anybody. But the best story is, <clears throat> um, quickly, uh, when Peter quit the group uh, in the late, uh, 60s, early 70s, Mike and David and I continued on and we did some recording and we were going to go on the road on a tour. But Peter, who had played, a, you know, a lot of instruments, you know, sometimes two at one time, like the keyboard with his right hand and the bass with his left, because essentially the Monkees was a trio, a power trio. It was Mike on guitar, me on drums and Peter on bass for 90 percent of it. David played tambourine and, and sang. So it was like a power trio. Mike played 12-string, Peter played keyboard, sometimes bass on his left hand or just the bass, and I played the drums. So we thought, well, Peter and I here, there's no way we can go out as, a, you know, drums and guitar. <laughs> and So Mike and I at the time were both into R&B, big time, Otis Redding, you know, big time. And I went and saw Otis Redding in San Francisco in a few weeks before he passed away, and I was just such a huge fan. And Mike was also a big fan of R&B. So one of us, I, I'd i been going to this club in, in, in L.A. and singing called The Red Velvet. And there was this R&B band called Sam and the Good Timers. And they were hardcore, Wilson Pickett. They had tuxedos and they had the little stands that said Sam and the Good Timers. And it was, ah, got the, ah, got the, got the, got the, oh, that's a way when a man loves a woman, <laughs> try a little tender. And I, we were both huge fans. So I guess we decided that's, we're, that's what we're going to do. We're going to get an R&B band, Sam and the Good Timers, this shit-hot R&B band, to back us up 
but also be the opening act. They would come out and do Wilson Pickett stuff because we loved it. And then they would back us up because I'd come out and sing the leads and play guitar. Davey would sing leads. Mike would play guitar. And it was Three Dog Monkey, <laughs> essentially, right? <clears throat> and it was great. And the fans just were like, what the hell is going on? And all the songs started taking on this timber, started taking on this tone. And Clarksville became, you know, take the last train to Clarksville. I got to meet you at the stage. I thought love was only true in fairy tales. Uh, uh, uh. Davey's going, I want to be free <laughs> like the bluebirds flying by we had the greatest time the fans thought we were out of our friggin minds but it was wonderful <laughs> that's awesome final three quick questions your biggest disappointment in show business and how you turned it into something positive whoa god i don't know i guess uh I don't know. I mean, I've, I've, I don't can't remember being asked. My biggest disappointment in showbiz, and ah, I had a, a very, I had a disappointment in England when I was developing uh, films and stuff, and I had developed this script by a writer that eventually became a movie, <clears throat> and I'd worked on it for years, and um, at uh, when the option came up, he refused to give me the option and used all the work I'd done and all the, the um, I won't name names, but a big writer. Um, and, and basically took it out from under my feet and went and made the film. Um, and I didn't turn it into something positive, but he never worked much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Karma. Karma. <laughs> Your proudest moment in show business. Whoa, probably getting the Emmy. Two Emmys we got, because coming out of television, you know, that was that was a big one. And then the last question is, what advice do you have for the young actor or person in the business who just has a dream when they're a kid or, or, or at any age and, and to move forward and, and have the kind of career you've had, even a musician or anybody of that nature, to make it through and navigate through yeah. this crazy business yeah. and get to the level and have the kind of career that you've had. Get a good lawyer. <laughs> you asked. <laughs> that is the shortest answer I've ever gotten to that question. <laughs> I think... It's perseverance is probably the, 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 the one word that, that I would use, you know, in this business and probably in any business, but in this one, you know, talent's important. Um, and, uh, but that alone, you know, how many times do we see talented people that they don't make it? We don't know why. And you're like, wow, why isn't that person? Or you see people that don't have any talent and they're like huge and you go, how did that happen? And so there's no formula, obviously. But I would think the the one thing that that you have to have is perseverance. It's it, you you got to keep at it. You got to stick to it and keep at it, and not think it's going to be an overnight thing because that very very seldom, if ever, happens. 
Mickey Dolans, this has been awesome. It's been a pleasure being your opening act and being Caucasian. <laughs> <laughs> I had an amazing time. You're an amazing man, Thank and you. I'm so proud and honored that I got to meet you and thank do you. this interview. Thank Great you fun. so much. Cool. As always, I'd like to thank our sponsor at Global Cash Card for free paperless payroll, saving your company thousands of dollars at globalcashcard.com. And as promised, our friends there are giving away $100 to a lucky winner who listens to this podcast from the iTunes comment review industry standard page. I will flick my magic mouse here and we will figure out who's going to win this week. Okay, this week the winner is by from Mad Dog of Southland Park, April 7th, 2015. That's a recent one. The heading says, Undeniable, a textbook for life. Five stars. Wow. Thank you, Mad Dog. This is what I assume he writes. I don't know if Mad Dog would be a she, but I'm, you know, I'm going with the guy thing. I have listened to every one of these podcasts. Wow. And each is a study in a particular kind of clarity and a particular kind of grace their creator, and avatar of kindness. I am almost 66, and if I were still teaching my college English classes, and if I were still teaching my college English classes, I would find a way to introduce my students to this rich, inspirational resource of life instruction. Parentheses, quote, no biting man, and more, end parentheses. Thank you, Barry. Well, thank you, Mad Dog. You just won a $100 gift card to Global Cash Card. Congratulations. And as always, this is another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's glory. I'll scream your name and put you on shoulders walk you to fame you'll get all the money drive that fancy car all the people love you cause you're going for life is for the dreamers they have all to gain it's never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.